Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is The Morning Shift. Close to the start of a new school year for Chicago Public Schools, and there have been lots of questions about hiring, staffing, special education, and more. For answers, we wanted to go straight to the top. Dr. Janice Jackson is the CEO of CPS. She begins by explaining exactly what this year's budget is all about. What you will see in this budget is more support for our neighborhood schools. There's a tremendous investment of over $600 million in just facility maintenance and upgrades and things like that. So we did not prioritize new buildings. Instead, we want to fix the aging infrastructure that we have in many of those schools, our neighborhood schools. We've also prioritized an equity grant for schools that are experiencing under-enrollment. And so those schools uh, received additional cash so that they can have a high-quality academic program despite the sharp decline in enrollment that some of them are experiencing. And so that's a few examples. We've also continued to make investments in special education, which is an area that's really important to us. And we're still staffing teachers every single day leading up to next week and beyond. But this year we have 200 additional special education educators, actual people, uh, teachers in our schools than we had compared to last year. And that's an investment that I'm extremely proud of. We still have uh, vacancies to fill, but we're moving in the right direction and we're really uh, proud of the progress we've made so far. Well, one of the things you, you referenced in your um, answer there was that you're you're happy about the dollars set aside in the budget to repair yeah. schools and that that money's being distributed in an equitable way. Yeah. Where are we seeing that money go? So um, all, all of this, I would encourage listeners to go on our website, uh, cps.edu, and look it up. But we do have maps that show the distribution. And so what we've done is we, we did an assessment of all of our facilities, and we're prioritizing, number one, keeping them warm, safe, and dry, which is mandatory. But we have also made an investment around um, accessibility. Uh, when we do renovations on schools, we have to bring them up to a certain code, which is standard. But beyond that, um, the past few years, we have not made investments in making sure that our schools are accessible. So in the vision that I just released last year, one of the commitments that was made is that we want to make sure that we have first floor accessibility in all uh, of our facilities, which is a major lift, but I think it's a move in the right direction. So you will see those investments in many of our neighborhood schools. And what I tell people is you don't see all the bells and whistles. It's not the same kind of fanfare that you, you see when you cut a ribbon on a brand new school or a brand new annex. But what I would argue is that every teacher in every school and every uh, child in every school deserves to walk in a building that is clean, that is safe, um, and that looks presentable so that kids feel good about the education they're receiving. Well, speaking of equity and, and equitable access to resources, let's take a listen to a voicemail from a listener who wanted to ask you this question. Okay. Hi, my name is Janine. I'm calling for Auburn Gresham. How will CPS's equity initiative address 368 grade retention. Why are students of color being retained when the message of equity is to meet, teach, and grow from where the student is? Yeah. Well, first, thank you, Janine, for that question. Um, And also, shout out to Auburn Gresham. That's the community I was born and raised in. Um, I think it's a great question. So, for one, um, the promotion policy is something that we do spend a great deal of time 
analyzing and making sure that we don't have disparate outcomes for kids of color. It's no secret that CPS, like every other school district in the country, has an issue around the achievement gap, in particular how African-American students perform compared to their peers. But the one thing that I would argue is that um, we have to, first of all, make sure that there's access to high quality curriculum and great teachers every single day, because that's the best way and the best chance we have at narrowing the achievement gap. But I would also say um, that we also know what it's like to have a system that promotes social promotion. That was the old CPS. And that's how and you just end explain it. social promotion. Social promotion <laughs> is when kids are promoted based on age and not performance. And some of the um, unintended outcomes of that is you see students graduating in some cases where they have not developed a proper level of reading proficiency. We want to make sure that we are uh, holding schools accountable, but also making sure that children are learning and that parents, more importantly, parents are made aware of where their children are and how they're performing. And one of the greatest disservices that I've seen is when parents, you know, feel good about the school, but their kids aren't getting what we all know they need in order to be successful once they transition from school. So striking that right balance between accountability and performance is always a hard balance to strike. Um, But I've been very clear uh, about my philosophy around that. And I've worked in predominantly African-American schools in Chicago on the South and West Side. And I honestly believe, based on my experience and the experience of children that I've educated, if we are really serious about eradicating poverty, we have to make sure that people can read, write, and do the things in order to be successful. And that requires us to give them a high-quality education. It also requires us to remediate when it's necessary. Can you talk about some of the concrete steps you're taking? To, to move in this direction? Well, uh, one that we uh, announced is the Curriculum Equity Project. And when you talk, if you think about education reform, this isn't the sexy stuff you hear about. I am a purist. I believe that what happens in the classroom is the single most important thing in a child's life from an educational standpoint. And unfortunately, what we've seen across our district is that there's inequity in the curriculum that's being presented to kids every day. And there are a host of reasons that account for that. But what does that inequity look like? Let me give you an example. Algebra in Lakeview looks different than Algebra in Little Village. And that's a problem. You should have access to the same set of standards. We shouldn't change the standards because of the skin color or the zip code of the children that we're serving. And when we do that, what ends up happening is when students are presented with the ACT or SAT, they don't account for what zip code you live in or what your what the color of your skin is. There is a curriculum, there is a canon that students must be exposed to throughout their um, educational career. And if we don't expose our kids to that, then we are setting them up for failure. And the Curriculum Equity Project is set up so that we give our teachers what they need. Teachers spend an inordinate amount of time, especially on Sundays. I know, I've been in there creating um, lessons and building a curriculum, we should be providing that to them so they can spend their time educating kids, but also assessing the students. So after students, you know, do the lessons, figuring out where, you know, student A is, where student B is, and not spending all of their time creating lessons. That's the district's job. And we're going to be giving our teachers from pre-K all the way through high school, concrete, grade level appropriate curriculum in all the core subject areas. Well, when it comes to budgeting, we did get a few questions about Mm -hmm. special education, including this one. And a quick note here, when Adam says IEPs, he's Mm -hmm. referring to individualized education programs, which are created for individual students. Hi, my name is Adam. I live in Pilsen. Uh, I'm a parent of CPS students, including um, students with uh, IEPs. Um, Dr. Jackson, the state has ordered CPS to provide compensatory education services uh, for special ed students whose services have been systematically denied by CPS. 
the potential pool of new students um, to get these services is over 12,000. And various services need to be given in addition to the usual standard special ed services for much of these students. But still, CPS did not appropriate any funds for this purpose in the FY20 budget. How do you plan to carry this out without budgeting for it? Yep. Um, first, thank you for that question. Um, CPS is prepared to make good on um, the requirements from ISBE around compensatory services for our students. It started with a letter, um, and I'm sure he received it because he referenced some of the data points in there that was sent out to all of the uh, potential affected families. It's also posted on our website for anybody who, who wants to take a look at it. We have earmarked funds in our budget to address the issues that have been outlined and the potential costs associated with that. Um, and so I uh, want to... <laughs> In the 2020 budget. In the 2020 budget. Um, our, uh, uh, the special education budget is the largest budget of any department in Chicago public schools. And I would encourage folks to uh, look at our interactive budget, which is online. After the board approves the budget tomorrow, we produce something called a residence guide, which is really a narrowed down version. It's about 20 or so pages that is easily accessible for the public as opposed to our 400 page interactive budget. Um, but we are uh, very serious about uh, making good on all of the mandates and the requirements that have come out of our um, uh, interaction with the ISB monitor. And I just want to assuage any of his concerns around that. We will uh, make do and and do exactly what ISB has directed us to do for Do FY20. you know roughly how much money has been earmarked? What he uh, referenced is the amount, the total pool. It would require people to come forward and, you know, to uh, file complaints for those services. So we don't know what the exact number is, um, but we have a rough estimate of what we think it's going to cost. And so the special education budget has more than enough money set aside to do that. And look, we have made clear since we have been engaged with the ISB monitor that any findings that come out of that, that we are going to agree to those. And today, which you can see um, from ISBE's reporting on this, CPS has made good on those promises. And that includes additional positions. We've worked extremely hard to get more professionals in the schools, both teachers and paraprofessionals. And so I would just encourage people to track and watch the progress. We can't fix it overnight, but I'm working intensely on it and we'll continue to do that. I want to turn to the district's negotiations with the Chicago Teachers Union. Yesterday, the district accepted the recommendations by an outside fact finder, yeah. but CTU rejected them. What do you think the contract negotiations will will turn on? What are the big, biggest issues right now? Well, in my estimation, I think compensation is, is a huge issue. And I count the fact that the independent fact finder uh, recommendation was was a fair one. As Mayor Lightfoot pointed out yesterday, it's one of the largest increases in CTU history. And I think that's the biggest sticking point. We also know that um, issues around staffing have come up. I think that where we are, we've made good on those promises. If you look at our FY20 budget, we've allocated the actual positions. We allocated the dollars first. We were criticized for that. So we allocated the exact position so that it was clear that that commitment has been made. You know, I've heard people say we wanted in black black and white, I think putting it in the budget is as black and white as it could get. Um, and so I think those are some of the bigger uh, sticking issues. I'm confident um, that we will be able to have a school year that's uninterrupted. Um, we've made a commitment, both the mayor and myself, as well as our board, to make sure that we can get a fair contract for our teachers and ensure that our students don't have any disruption. One of the things that I committed to when I became CEO was to bring about more stability and certainty in this district. And the last thing we need is to have parents worried about 
things that can be settled um, as long as all the adults are at the table. The uh, negotiations have been moving along um, nicely, more quickly in recent weeks, which I count as a good sign. I think we'll get a deal done. There's no reason, if you look at what um, CPS is proposing and what the union is asking for, and more importantly, what the fact finder has um, identified as a fair middle ground, there's no reason why we can't get there. We just have to take into consideration what's being said. Uh, but CTU has pushed back and said, you know, the, the fact finder's uh, decision, it doesn't really offset some of the austerity measures that have been taken mm-hmm. over the past decade or so, that, that CPS teachers have been feeling the pinch for a long time, mm-hmm. and this doesn't go far enough mm-hmm. to, to offset yeah. uh, what they've, the financial losses they've, they've seen. How do you respond to that as someone yeah. who, who's yeah. been in well, education? Well, first of all, I've been in education in CPS throughout all of those things, and so I have experienced those similar to every other individual that's a member of CTU. Um, so I, I, say, uh, I, I say that to, to make a Point that I'm connect, I connect with them in that way. But I would also argue that you can't change the goalpost in the middle of a negotiation. This is a new administration um, under uh, Mayor Lightfoot. She's made clear um, she's a proponent of public education and that she supports the CTU. If you look at the decisions that are being made, despite the city's uh, budget situation, which is dire, and she's going to talk about that later this week, she has prioritized making sure that teachers get what they need in order to be to feel that they're fairly compensated. And she came right out the gate, in my opinion, with very deliberate speed around um you know, asking us to put in these additional positions and to budget in a more equitable way. And I think she is making good on the promises that she made during her campaign. So we can't change the goalposts. And we also have to take into consideration, you know, I'm here speaking about CPS. Her job is to manage the entire city. There are a lot of priorities, education, in my opinion, being the most important one. If you look at what she's done in the first 100 days, she has prioritized education. And so we can't change the goalposts because you have a mayor who is moving in the right direction and fair. We can't keep changing it. We need to get a deal done because that's what our parents expect. And I would even argue that's what most of the teachers and the educators in our building expect. Nobody wants to see disruption. This the, the temperature and the climate right now is very different than it was in 2012. It's very different than it was in 2016. I was around for all of those. People want us to do our job and get a deal done. I want you to put this within a larger context for us, though. As we know, there's been an issue of teacher shortages mm-hmm. within CPS and Pay yeah. is one of the things that yeah. comes up a lot. How yeah. do you make CPS a, a competitive mm-hmm. district, able to draw more mm-hmm. teachers? And I, yeah. I'm well, CPS put- is one of the most competitive districts. If you look, Governor Pritzker just signed a bill uh, raising the average teacher pay to somewhere around forty thousand dollars by twenty twenty two. The average first year teacher in CPS makes fifty thousand dollars already. So we've blown past that. I think there's a misconception about what the actual pay is. If you look at the contract that we're proposing today, a second year teacher who currently in two thousand nineteen makes fifty two thousand dollars will be making seventy two thousand dollars by the end of this contract. People that are listening know you cannot guarantee you're going to get that kind of a raise, especially in a situation where we could be close to a recession. These are all factors that anybody who's paying attention to economics would would take into consideration. The average teacher in CPS makes about $78,000. At the end of this contract, we're talking about close to $100,000 at at about $98,000. This is real money. And so we had all the money in the world. We would pay them, you know, the salaries that professional athletes get. Everybody Mm -hmm. agrees with that argument. 
But we have to talk about the brass tax and, and the, the facts that we have. This is a fair contract, given the uh, financial constraints that we have to be making this type of investment, not only in compensation, but in support with real professional support and individuals in our building. We're moving in the right direction. At the same time, WBZ education reporter Sarah Karp um, recently found that one in three CPS schools had at least one regular education or Mm -hmm. special education teaching position open all year long, um, that that shortage was prevalent in schools, serving mostly black students. What are you doing this year to make sure students aren't left in classrooms mm-hmm. without teachers or at least yeah. a, a regular substitute? I, I actually really appreciated the reporting around that because when we have these arguments about positions, the thing that nobody ever takes into consideration are the talent issues. Teacher shortage is not just an issue in Chicago. It's a, it's an issue uh, nationwide. We actually do a little bit better because, of, you know, we're in a large metropolis. But what I will say is that One of the things that we're doing is being more intentional about how we allocate and open up new positions. One thing that people never like to talk about is when we open up the call for additional SPED positions or case managers, when we open those positions up citywide, you know what happens? Certified teachers from the south and the west side leave to move back closer to home. Many of them who reside on the north side of the city move in order to take those positions. So we get called um, to the carpet on um, opening positions, but we also have to be intentional about how we do that so that we don't continue to see resources from the south and the west side of Chicago move to other parts of the city. How do you do that? For example, the social worker positions that we are allocating, we prioritize areas based on need, a hardship index, staffing in the schools. We looked at some of the needs of the students, some of the, uh, you know, the special education requirements. So we are using data that we have at our availability to make decisions and prioritizing putting those positions in those places first. The case managers that we are allocating um, for this year, we're going to do the same thing. We want to open those in schools and networks and encourage the individuals who work in those schools and networks to remain in those schools or in those regions because we have the data that shows that this occurs. And so we can't make the problem worse by continuing to open up positions unilaterally across the district because past practice has shown that when you do that, people migrate from one part of the city to the next. This is something that rarely gets talked about. So I really appreciate you asking that question. But I also, what I also hear you saying is that there's a problem with the pipeline, just yeah, getting enough is, to, yep. so how do you, how we, do you fill that pipeline? We, we actually launched a very aggressive uh, multi-pronged process for the pipeline. Uh, it's called Teach Chicago. The first thing we're doing is growing our own. So last year uh, we had our first cohort. We're actually going to be celebrating them um, this Thursday where we took paraprofessionals who work in our schools that have bachelor's degrees and we're paying for them to go back and get uh, teaching certificates. Last year we had uh, close to 30 people in that cohort. This year we're going to have up to 100. Many of these people are people of color and so this is not only helping the pipeline issue but it's also helping our diversity issue. We're working with our local universities. If you look nationally as well as in the state of Illinois, the number of people going into the profession of teaching has declined dramatically especially among African and American and Latino candidates. And so one of the things that we're also doing is expanding our career and technical education programs around education in our schools. I became a teacher because of a minority teachers uh, program that we had when I was in high school. And we need more um, students who are going off to college to think about teaching as a profession, especially if we're going to cure the pipeline issue. Well, hiring is an area where we got a lot of questions from CPS teachers and staff, actually, including this one. Hello, my name is Paul Denovi. I'm a CPS music teacher. I teach in the Dunning neighborhood, and I live in Gladstone Park. 
my question is, uh, will every school in Chicago get at least one full-time nurse for each campus? Will we see enforceable language in the contract? Will these, will these positions be privatized? Uh, my school's nurse works at five different schools. She's only there twice a week, and we have two campuses. Thank you. The nursing proposal that we've put out, we hired, I believe, an additional 50 nurses going into this school year. Um, the nursing proposal that we put out is to make sure there is continuous care in all of our schools. And what that means is we have to get away from what um, the caller just described of nurses working in multiple schools. You know, you can't have a nurse just one day a week who's there to do IEPs. We need to make sure that there are individuals who are there to support the kids. This, again, goes back to the hiring issue that we talked about earlier. In the case of both social workers and nurses, there just simply aren't enough certified people who have both the nursing degree as well as the school uh, certification to work in our schools. The individuals don't exist. So what we have been doing in particular with nurses is uh, recruiting registered nurses who are already RNs and working with them to fast track them in order to get their um, license so that they can work in our schools. This is an example of um, some of the efforts and also financial support that CPS has invested to address the nursing crisis. As far as privatization, I've made clear throughout my tenure that um, we have to roll back some of the things that we were doing before. I believe that people have to be connected to the district in a way that makes, first of all, retains them. And I think that being a CPS employee is the best way to do that. And so if you look under my tenure, we have not increased privatization. In fact, we've rolled it back um, as much as we can. And that's something that we'll continue to do because I believe that people should be employed with the district. They'll be more connected um, to the work that they're doing. Uh, if they are employed by CPS. I, I want to open the conversation up a little. This is going to be a different sort of question from mm-hmm. a listener, one that's more about what's being prioritized in the curriculum. Let's yeah. listen. Hello, my name is Cameron. I'm an educator who lives in Lakeview. I'm curious to know how Dr. Jackson and CPS are preparing students to navigate an age of widespread disinformation campaigns on social media, as well as a world where some of the technologies we use every day are designed to be intentionally addictive? Those are great questions, not only for me as CEO, but as a parent. Um, The one thing uh, that I would say we're doing around the uh, just efforts to make sure people are accessing accurate information is the work that we're doing in our civics education. We actually supported a bill um, that was just recently passed around not only uh, increasing civics education in middle school, but we're also working to um, do a better job educating our students on reliable sources and help them to uh, discern what's true and what's not true. I think there are so many positive things about technology. I'm a big proponent of that. But I think in this digital age and when kids have access to so much information and so much earlier in life, the school system does have a role in making sure that students understand. I don't think censoring them is the right approach. I don't even think that's possible given, I guess, the accessibility of technology and all the information. But what I would, would say is that we have to make sure that they know the difference between reliable sources and sources that are less reliable. And that's something that we teach through our civics education uh, courses. I want to turn to student safety. Um, One year ago, a Chicago Tribune investigation found more than 500 sexual abuse cases over 10 years in CPS. And it was largely due to a failure to conduct proper background checks, Mm -hmm. to report sexual misconduct. And you came on the show then and talked about a a top-to-bottom review of the district's response to sexual sexual misconduct. A a year later, Mm -hmm. what's changed? Well, 
lot has changed. Um, as you know, one of our first steps was to recheck the backgrounds of every single individual who works in our schools and has access to our students, which was a major undertaking and I think really helped us to clean up all of that, but also establish trust with the parents and the families that we serve to let them know that anyone who is in our buildings or has access to children, that they have been properly vetted. We also created the Office of Student Protections in Title IX, which I think has been um, one of the biggest, uh, most positive things that has come out of this. What we're doing in that office is, first of all, making it easy for students and um, adults to report any um, uh, sexual abuse or any suspicions around abuse because we changed our policy and you don't have to have a smoking gun if you have suspicions or if you see grooming those things are now prohibited in CPS and so we've made it easier for people to report and one of the things that I learned um, which I had to learn quickly about how to address this issue is that when you create a culture and environment where uh, victims feel comfortable moving forward that's the first step in creating a culture that's free of sexual abuse and um, we see more people reporting. Many of the reports are things that um, are un- unsubstantiated or maybe suspicions, but I count that as a good thing because it's allowing us to create an environment where if you are a predator, CPS is somewhere where you don't want to come because you will be caught and you will and those things will be addressed. The other thing that the Office of Student Protections is doing is working on student on student cases, which is something that was not, um, you know, I don't think it was on our radar prior to us, prior to the Tribune series. And I think what's important here is that we have an opportunity to raise a new generation who understands um, that some of the things that may have been considered okay 20 or 30 years ago is no longer okay because that's the only way that we're going to stop the pervasiveness of um, you know mistreatment of women in particular in our society and sexual abuse not only between adults I mean with adults and children but even as adults and so there's a lot being done there Um, CPS uh, is a K-12 system obviously a lot of the work around this has been mainly at the post-secondary and the university level, but we are kind of leading in this because as a result of the the series and I've been really encouraged by the work that we're doing and also excited to share that work with other school systems so that kids are safe across the country. Well, before we let you go, we're just a week out from the first day of school for CPS. What do you want to tell families and students about preparing for that first day back? Well, I'm sure parents are excited about the first day of school and students get excited if you're not. Um, But, you know, we know that the first day of school is critically important and just like the district works hard to to make sure that you you know there's a high quality principal and teacher in every building in front of students. We want to make sure that the kids are there on the first day on time. Um, you have to start strong in order to finish strong. And so we've been doing a lot to get the word out and make sure that students are in school. We also have um, pl- plenty of resources available on our website. So if people have questions around registration, um, people need school supplies. We've been posting um, information about bashes on our social media sites. If there if there are things that folks need in order to get ready for school, please visit www.cps.edu. Um, and the back back to school page is there with a host of resources to support them. All right, that's Chicago Public Schools CEO Dr. Janice Jackson. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the show. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a rating. It helps other people find us. Another great way to get in touch is by leaving us a voicemail. You can give us a call with any feedback you have. Leave us a message at 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. I'm Jen White. Let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.